Tonight, I invite you to draw your sword if you brought a Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 64. I want to read in your hearing the first 12 verses, read the chapter in its entirety. If you'll stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 64, let me begin at verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We are shriveled up like a leaf, and like the wind, our, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name. No one strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us a waste away because of our sins. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O oh Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O oh Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent? and punish us beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The prophet Isaiah has one request of the Lord. Rend the heavens and come down. Have you ever had a scenario, a situation, a circumstance, a problem, a predicament, a prognosis that left you saying something like this, oh God, I wish you would come down and fix it. I think that's what Adam must have said when he learned that Cain killed Abel. Daniel probably said something like that when he was staring into the mouths of the lions. Martha said that. When her dear brother Lazarus was dead and Jesus was four days late. This idea of God rip open the heavens and come down, that's not just reserved for people living in the Bible. Chad said something like that when he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Stephanie screamed something like that when her four-year-old boy was diagnosed with leukemia. And Sam uttered something like that under his breath when his wife of some 27 years came in, sat him down, said, I no longer love you, I want a divorce, and there's somebody else. Oh, Lord, rip open the heavens and come down and fix it. 
The idea of rend or rip is to rip open with haste and with fury, similar to what your children will do tomorrow morning. As they stare at the Christmas presents, they will rend the presents open. They will rip them open with haste. In the same way Isaiah is saying of the Lord, I wish you would quickly rip open the heavens and come down. This request for God to come down, Isaiah makes it three times. The first is in verse 1, the second is in verse 2, the third is in verse 3. Oh God, I wish you'd come down and fix it. He says in verse 4, but, but we are a people who know that you, you act on behalf of those who wait for you and do what is right. Isaiah was living in the days of the divided kingdom with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. There weren't a whole lot of people that were doing right in the days of Isaiah. He lived in the times when the Assyrians came and overtook the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. He predicted with accuracy that the Babylonians would come in and overtake the southern kingdom of Judah, and that would take place in 586 B.C. When he speaks about the temple being uh, uh, burned down and everything lying in ruins, he's talking about what is going to happen by the barbaric Babylonians. At best, the people of his nation were spiritually apathetic. At worst, they were spiritually rebellious. I think it's at this point that his nation looks a lot like our nation, doesn't it? I mean, at best, the people of our culture are spiritually apathetic. At worst, we are spiritually rebellious. And yet he says, I know that, that you act on behalf of those who wait for you. That word wait means a, a hopeful expectation and those who do right, and you're the one, God, who decides what is right. We don't decide what is right. You are the author of morality. You are the one who defines ethics. So you're the one, oh God, who says what is right and says what is wrong, says what is good and says what is bad, and you act on behalf of those who do right according to your word. But we continue to sin, he says. Can anybody give that testimony? that we continue to sin, even though we know what God expects, we continue to mess up. And he says we, not y'all. He doesn't say you rotten people. He says we continue to sin. He lumps himself in with everybody else. We continue to sin. And then in verse five, he has a fundamental life question. How then can we be saved? This is a fundamental foundational question for all of life. Every person has to ask it and answer it. How can we be saved? In verses six and seven, he simply says we can't not save ourselves. We cannot do it ourselves. If we could save ourselves, we would, but the reality is we are defiled and we are decayed. We are defiled, for he says our righteous action, our man-made righteousness, our, our best efforts, to do what is good and right and moral. Our righteous acts are filthy rags. The prophet is very picturesque. He's using the imagery of a filthy rag being a menstrual cloth that a woman would discard every month. We are unclean, he says. Our, our righteous acts are as, are as noble as a menstrual cloth. We cannot save ourselves. Not only are we unclean, but we're also decayed. We are as if, it's as if we are like uh, dried, shriveled up leaves that the wind just blows away. There's no way we can save ourselves. 
we're unclean, we're immoral, we're dead. We have as much life as a, as a leaf that falls off the tree and lands on the ground. It, it shrivels up, it dies, it, it's blown away. There's nothing to it. How then can we be saved? In verse 8, he appeals to the only thing he can appeal to. Yet you, are, you, O God, are our Father. He appeals to the relationship that God has with his people. You are our Father. You are the potter, we are the clay. So then, verses 9 and following, he asks a string of questions. Will you remember our sins forever? Remember, you're our Father. Will you remember our sins forever? Will you hide your face from us? Will you hold back yourself from us? Will you be silent? You're our Father. The only thing I can plead is that you will be a good daddy. As I think about what Isaiah says, this is a watershed moment for him. I mean, he lived some 700 years before the coming of Christ, and yet he accurately predicts the necessity of the coming of Christ. And he says that that God is going to do this simply because God is our Father. I have two biological children. Hopefully I have more spiritual children, but I have two biological children, Molly Grace and Nathan. And there is nothing they can do that would break the relationship that they have with me as father to child. There's nothing they can do. Sure, they may uh, disappoint me sometimes. They may disobey me from time to time. But they cannot dissolve the relationship that I have with them. I am their dad. Always will be. Always will be. Nothing, nothing can ever change that. Isaiah pleads on that ground. He says, God, you are our father. So because you're our father, there's nothing we can do that would sever that relationship. There's nothing we can do that would break the uh, relationship that we have with you. You are our father. So, so God, you, you've got to do something. Isaiah comes to this conclusion. Our only remedy is for God to rescue us. Our only remedy is for God to rescue us. When I consider that, when I think that God did break his silence, even though he was silent for 400 years, for the last prophet to speak was Malachi, and for the next 400 years, there was no divine utterance. There was a a sovereign silent treatment that God evoked against humanity. But on that starry night in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, God spoke. And when I realize that God, who was silent, broke the silence. I know that our only remedy is for God to rescue us. When I stop and consider that the God who made a promise keeps a promise, our only remedy is for God to rescue us. When I comprehend that God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth and was born in a Bethlehem barn some 2,000 years ago, I declare to you that our only remedy is for God to rescue us. When I peer into that manger and I see the Christ child and I realize that that is the same one who is the God-man who will die on a cross made of wood, I come to this conclusion our only remedy is for God to rescue us. 
When I stop and consider he who opened up the eyes of blind man, unstopped deaf ears, raised the dead back to life again, lived a perfect life, stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with your sins and my sins upon his shoulders. He went outside of Jerusalem city, went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there he was crucified. And when I see my Jesus hanging on the cross, I reach this conclusion. The only remedy we have is for God to rescue us. And that faithful Friday, for a few hours, God squeezed an eternity's worth of condemnation, punishment for your sin and mine, and placed it upon Jesus. And Jesus breathed his last. He declared, it is finished. Payment for your sin is done. He took his last breath. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a tomb. And on the third day, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Spirit on that first Easter Sunday, as Jesus burst forth from the tomb, I reached this conclusion. Our only remedy is for God to rescue us. Our only remedy as humans is for God to rescue us. Our only remedy for our problems is for God to rescue us. Our only remedy in our difficult situations is for God to rescue us. Our only remedy is for God to rescue us. And he has, and he has. On this night, we remember that he has. He ripped open the heavens and he came down. And he came to rescue us. From the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive full rights as sons and daughters of God. Our only remedy is for God to rescue us, and he has. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you that you ripped open the heavens, that you came down. We thank you that you sent Jesus as our salvation Thank you that this is the only way that any of us can be saved is by faith, belief that this Christ child is the God-man and that you wrapped yourself in flesh and descended upon the earth, lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death for us so that we might live forever with you. So thanks for coming into our mess to rescue us from a mess. And we trust you. We believe in you. And tonight, we thank you that God came down and fixed it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.